0: This is Kick-Ass News, I'm Ben Mathis. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis, welcome to Kick-Ass News. I don't know who first said there's more than one way to skin a cat, or for that matter, why anyone would want to skin a cat, but it could have easily been my guest today, cartoonist and scientist Randall Monroe. The number one best-selling author and creator of the webcomic XKCD is used to his fans asking him questions that usually begin with what if or how can I, and he responds with outlandish but thoroughly researched and scientifically sound answers for how to accomplish just about anything. Now he's taking it to the next level with a book that finds complex solutions to everyday tasks. It's called How To... Absurd Scientific Advice for Common Real-World Problems, and today Randall joins me on the show to explain how to use elaborate scientific theories to do everything from sending a package to moving a house. He discusses how he went from being a NASA physicist to a cartoonist on the web, and he says there are actually a surprising number of physicists turned cartoonists. In fact, there are a surprising number of physicists turned cartoonists who share his birthday. Randall reveals the biggest hurdle to building a molten lava moat around your home, how to throw a coin or just about anything across a river, and how Serena Williams takes down a drone. Plus, fishing with electricity, why scientists still haven't figured out how ice works, and why the U.S. military once nuked a bunch of beer cans. Coming up with Randall Monroe in just a moment.
1: actual study on this before I can cite it and something because yeah. I, I remember reading about it a long time ago. Uh, there was a military study of soldiers in desert conditions and they wanted and they were saying that they, you know, are constantly having trouble supplying enough water. And so they wanted to try they they found that if they took if they cut water rations in half, all the soldiers got dehydrated. Um but so then they did, you know, that's the problem. Yeah. But if they did a, another study, uh they tried over the same period just slowly tapering the water rations to the same level, Uh but giving them like a week at every reduced level Um, by the end of it the soldiers still got exactly as dehydrated because you can't, like, learn to not need water. Yeah. You know, funny. so it's like, huh. like, you need a certain amount of water and there's no, like, trick to, <laughs> you know, well, if you do this, you can get by with, you know, it's like, yeah. no, you just, you just, your body needs you water. Just need you can't, water. You just need water. You can't science your way out of that one.
0: Well, let's tell the folks who oh, you me. are. Uh, this is Randall Monroe. He is a former NASA roboticist who left the agency in 2006 to draw comics on the Internet full time. He's the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, What If? and Thing Explainer, and the creator of the science question and answer blog, What If?, and the popular webcomic, XKCD. Now he's written a new book described as the world's most entertaining and useless self-help guide. It's titled, How To? Absurd Scientific Advice for Common Real-World Problems. Randall Monroe, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, thanks so much for
0: having me. (laughs) Well, I really enjoyed the book, and I'm also a fan of your website, XKCD. Oh, thank you. Where you post, uh, I'm trying to think how to describe them. they're They're usually scientifically inspired cartoons. And I think just to give people a sample of your humor, here's a cartoon that I found on the site today. It's called Foucault Pendulum. I don't know if you remember that one. Mm-hmm. And admittedly, a podcast is you know an auditory medium is not the best uh, platform for a cartoon, mm-hmm. but the first panel uh, presumably takes place in a science museum. And you have one of those Foucault pendulums, which people probably know as the pendulum that knocks down the little pegs. Mm-hmm. And there's, uh, I guess, a museum docent or something is taking a tour group through and says, This Foucault pendulum demonstrates Earth's rotation. It stays in a fixed plane where the Earth rotates under it. And then one of the visitors thinks to himself, Hmm. Really? So that means, and then he runs in and grabs the pendulum and stops it. We then cut to the last panel of a newscaster, says the Earth's rotation was briefly halted today until geophysicists wrestled the intruder to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the kind of stuff that we're dealing with here. (laughs) Now, you you actually do have a background in science, right? You started out as a physicist.
1: Yeah, uh, I did a degree in physics at uh, Christopher Newport University in Virginia, um, an undergraduate degree. And then, uh, and then from there, I started working on uh, robots at na- the nearby NASA Langley Research Center.
0: Wow. That's pretty cool. Was that a fun job?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. It was really fun. I, um, I started out with a summer internship, which uh, I think I found a flyer for it. And, you know, I wasn't always the greatest student, so I was like, oh, this is probably a thing I'm not qualified for. Yeah. Uh, and I think it turned out literally no one else from my college applied. Really? So, huh. you know, you never, I guess my that's a life tip. You never know, uh, apply yeah. for random stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. I didn't think NASA still used flyers for recruiting.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it was interesting up up in the the engineering and uh, physics department. How oh, funny.
0: Now, what led you to quit that and go into cartoons?
1: Well, it was sort of an accident. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was also, you know, NASA kind of helped me a little bit. Uh, I don't know if, if so I was working on a contract basis and I had to like convince them to give me a new contract, you know, or uh uh, every like 90 days they would be like re-upping my contract for the project I was working on. Okay. And so then when the when they uh, the funding for that project, you know, they were like we're going to we're going to we're going to stop doing this contract. We can find you a new one if you want. Um, and right around that time I had been drawing comics online and uh, people had started wanting to buy t-shirts huh. and uh, and the and like At first, I just shipped a few T-shirts, and then suddenly there were a whole lot of orders, and so I was spending a lot of my time when I wasn't uh, working at this lab, just like buying and folding and organizing T-shirts and handling PayPal, you know, and uh, orders, (laughs) and uh, and then I realized like, wow, I'm actually I I might. I might be making more money if I stay home at this point. Really, um, off of so, t-shirts? Yeah, I, it was. It was Because you don't really license lucky. your cartoons, right? No, I mean you don't uh, syndicate them. Uh, no, no. The news. Right. Well, so I grew up reading things like Calvin and Hobbes, and mm-hmm. you know, The Far Side, and those were big influences on in me. But I knew about like the the fights that they would have with the syndicates and how, like, mm-hmm. you know, Bill Watterson, famously uh, the author of Calvin and Hobbes, had like long fights with the syndicates over licensing and merchandising, and he had very strong principles about you know. And, and uh, and uh, you know, I feel like people in comics really admired him for, you know, standing up uh, and having that fight. But also, like, the fact that he had to have that fight made yeah. newspaper cartooning sound like, oh, wow. You know, yeah. like, he shopped his comics around for five years before he found someone who would put them in newspapers. So... But the internet, you can just put stuff there. No yeah. one can stop you. So it seemed way easier. Uh, yeah. Well,
0: I mean, that's still how it works in most cases, and mm-hmm. that's how cartoonists make money. You you said that you did this because you thought it was a good business decision <laughs> to put it out there for free. Explain that. Oh yeah, yeah. How well, does that and, work.
1: You know, I feel like now nowadays. That's an easier sell for people. Mm-hmm. The idea that uh, the best marketing is sort of word of mouth—that mm-hmm. um, you can't—and so now people put put a lot of effort into like making things that are going to go viral. And I yeah. and I think when I started doing this at about you know in 2005 and 2006, and people were asking like, "Wait, why are all these people you know reading your website?" I I don't think I had a term for uh, for that. I don't yeah. think the term "going viral." Maybe was... you invented the term. No, no, definitely <laughs> no. But um, because I remember trying to explain, it's like, yeah, I, no, I didn't buy ads anywhere. But, like, if someone likes something and they send it to mm-hmm. someone else and then the, everyone sort of does that, it, yeah. it can grow really fast. So instead of having to, like, shop it around for five years, I went from, like, posting comics online to, like, doing comics full time uh, wow. in under under a year. And which,
0: this was before social media really caught well, yeah, on was, and that kind of thing. Yeah, like, and what it was, was, were they emailing? Yeah, Cartoons no I mean there there well. were all kinds of places people mm-hmm. hung out online um yeah. all kinds of forums chat rooms, chat rooms. yeah, yeah I mean, you know
1: the era of AOL instant messenger yeah. I was making oh, yeah. that but it was a lot of it was just being in the right place at the mm-hmm. right time you know like that yeah. it it I was just really lucky I was doing comics about stuff that people were looking for comics about right then you know and yeah. and uh so like I don't know people are like what should I do uh uh you know if I want to be successful at at doing you know a web any kind of web publishing thing i'm like man i don't know i (laughs) i just feel like i got i got so fortunate in where i was what i was doing when i was doing it and like that seemed like such a big part of it
0: yeah and apparently you now have your own wiki for xkcd where there's a whole fan culture of people trying to explain your cartoons and in some cases even trying to speculate about their creator Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, do you have any favorite fan theories about yourself
1: No, no, no. I I actually try to steer clear of most of that. That's uh, smart because (laughs) I don't know. I think it's I think it's really easy to kind of like get hooked into responding to things, Mm -hmm. and then you know it might be like I want to correct this particular person, but like there are too many people on the internet to do that. Yeah. Um. uh, Early on, I did a comic about uh, making fun of the. The urge to stay up late at night uh, and not go to bed because someone's wrong on the internet and you have to prove them right. (laughs) And I partly did this comic to kind of like remind myself, like sometimes you should just leave the internet alone, let it do its thing. Um, And and the nice thing about doing that was uh, that comic, I was sort of setting a trap for myself because if I started to get too mad at something online and like argue with someone then someone else could be like, hey, you know, there's this great comic about how uh, how dumb it is to do that. <laughs> have you seen this? It's called, excuse, and like nothing takes the wind out of your sails, like having someone quote your own comic to yeah. you to make, prove that you're wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because we're living in this time where science is just getting so politicized and so confrontational. And, and in some instances, maybe rightly so, because we are facing some serious problems that we have to tackle. And some people just want to bury their heads in the sand. But you generally avoid being too preachy about science and getting into those arguments. Instead, usually opt to let your work speak for itself. It makes me think of the, the cartoon that you did, the wonderful infographic uh, about the history of global warming. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that's a better way for science to win over hearts and minds? Or, or mostly minds. I guess we're going for minds. but Well, I mean, I don't yeah. know
1: if uh, uh – uh the the there's a great climate scientist uh, Catherine Hayhoe, who talks about how really the way to reach someone's mind is first to conv- you know to to reach them through the heart and then that mm-hmm. opens them up to you um uh there's a lincoln quote about that too um i think i think i don't know i i i don't know the right way to do all this stuff uh uh but one thing that i think is really pretty true and sometimes hard to follow is that like it's never um it's never good to be too to to get too kind of preachy at people mm-hmm. because no one no one likes being condescended to. sure. and people can really tell when you're doing that, even if you're like trying to mask it. Mm-hmm. And so what i what I try to do is instead of like yelling at people or telling them like you're doing this, and that's, you know, wrong. and if you think it's a good idea, you're a bad person or whatever. and and instead, like try to talk about like, Here are the things that I find exciting and surprising and interesting Mm -hmm. and try to share those with people in a way that will help them feel the same way.
0: Yeah. Is there something about the way a physicist views the world that lends itself to the kind of humor in your cartoons, kind of wry, almost Gary Larson-esque humor?
1: I don't know. Maybe. It does seem like, and maybe this is just because I know, uh, you know, I notice it, uh, but it does seem like there are sort of a weirdly large number of uh, people with physics degrees who then go on into a cartooning career. Really? Um, is yeah. that true? Like, hey. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a uh, um, uh, there's another webcomic uh, guy who does uh, you know a lot of a lot of sort of similar stuff. He's a he's a great guy. We're friends. Uh, uh, Zach Weiner Smith. Uh, he does okay. Saturday Morning Breakfast Cereal. Um, Bill Amond, the author of Foxtrot, who mm-hmm. which I you know grew up reading. He's uh, a yeah. he's a great guy. Also a physics degree. Huh. And um, in fact, my one of my favorite pieces of trivia is that uh, of all of the cartoonists. Who started off with a physics degree before going into uh, uh, cartoons, and uh, you know, and and who who uh, had a lot of readers who were like engineers um, or uh, 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 you know technical people, but also like young people. Um, of all of those cartoonists, of the ones who were born on October seventeenth. I think I'm the second most successful. What? Uh, because the uh, – Who's uh, the first? Because uh, Mike Judge, who did Beavis and oh, Butthead and also Office Space. Yeah, he's got a physics degree. Oh, my There's God. I, never knew I, don't that. Know, wow. I don't know how this – I don't know. So maybe
0: I think – That's hilarious. Huh. I,
1: yeah, I feel like I, I, I really like uh, – uh, I get along with people who did physics for the most yeah. part. I think because there is a kind of mindset of you got to be like uh, – uh, a little bit too like head in the clouds to be a good engineer almost yeah. like you gotta you're always like okay well what if we make this situation more general and idealized and try to find a an overall theory that explains it all even if it's not like useful for the specific thing <laughs> but then like if you go too far in that direction you go into like pure mathematics mm-hmm. and you start doing like algebraic geometry or something which has like like nothing to do with anything. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not not to insult any algebraic geometrists out there, but uh, but like so it's people who like wobble back and forth between the practical yeah. and the theoretical. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's maybe there's something to that.
0: Yeah. Now I imagine that you would probably be the first to admit that you're no Michelangelo. <laughs> your cartoons are famously simplistic. I mean, they're basically stick figures.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, someone someone asked me uh uh, uh just yesterday about so like so wh- how did you develop your stick figure drawing style? <laughs> and I was like. It's not so much that I developed it. It's that I never <laughs> developed anything else. Like, I started off doing stick figures. I wonder,
0: do you think that works in your favor? Because now, yeah, I guess the art is less distracting from the idea behind the comics.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the cool things about comics is that they let you um, mm-hmm. kind of simplify and, and cut out the stuff that's not, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not as relevant. And, I mean, there's this Scott McCloud quote about how when you look at a photo or a realistic drawing, you see of a face – you see someone else, but if you look at like an icon of a face, you see yourself, you know, you can, it's easier yeah. to put yourself in their shoes. Right. Um, and yeah, and I think, I think that simplicity can, can, can really be a good thing. I mean, but it's also mm-hmm. like, I sure hope it it can be a good thing. Cause, uh, uh, because that's, uh, that's what I've learned to draw. But no, I like the, and the comics I grew up reading, um, You know, I I draw these simple stick figures, but like and so it's like, Oh, it's just a few lines. But then like I look at like peanuts, you know, the Charles Schultz Mm -hmm. strip, and the number of lines in those strips is like not not that it's like so few of them. He just he just knew exactly where to put them and that's really impressive. Yeah. Who were the
0: cartoonists that you grew up admiring? I mean, you mentioned Um, Calvin and Hobbes.
1: Yeah, well, I feel like that's the big one. That was Mm -hmm. you know, I was just at the right age. It was that was the first comic I ever read. I remember pulling a book off a shelf and being like, Oh, what's this? And it open and trying to understand the panels, you know. Yeah,
0: me too. I think it was one of the first of that and Farside. I think Far, I read yeah. some of the old Peanuts cartoons.
1: Farside's but, great. Yeah. No, I re- and I read, um, you know, but I just read everything in the library under that comics yeah. section. You know, <laughs> I, I I never read any of the like Marvel and DC kinds mm-hmm. of comics. I never and and the Japanese comics. You know, a lot of cartoonist friends grew up, you know, reading those. But for me, it was mostly um, yeah. I mostly read newspaper comics.
0: Before we get to the book, I have to ask. What is XKCD? Is that an inside joke or something? No.
1: I noticed, I noticed early on with the internet that you, uh, you have to pick usernames. And mm-hmm. I started out using uh, uh, AOL in 1993. Uh, when my family got an account and I had to pick a name and so I was like picking names based on whatever I was interested in at the time so for a while I would like use the username uh, Skywalker4 and then I got really into <laughs> okay. the end you know there were three other people who had I mean that's amazing Skywalker.
0: that you were number four.
1: Oh yeah yeah I mean there were people who got all kinds of I, I was then Animorph7 um, <laughs> and I did a few other uh, you know but like every time I like got into a new book series or a new like thing that I was excited about yeah. and wanted to um, I would pick a new name, but then I realized that's starting to get confusing because you got to make names yeah. on a couple of different places. Yeah, and I would try to pick a name that sounded cool, but then a few years later, like something that sounds cool to an eleven-year-old does not sound cool to a sixteen-year-old. Yeah. You know, and then, and then it continues yeah. like this. So I was that like, must you must know have what frustrated re- your friends. Well, exactly. That's the <laughs> thing. Is, but I don't want to change, change my email. name because they all know, you know, yeah. how to reach me that way. And I, so I realized when I was a teenager, I was like, wait, if we got to pick names for things, I might be stuck with this for a really long time. Um, I want something that doesn't have any meaning that I'm going to get tired of <laughs> and that's really short because I'm going to be typing it on a bunch of places uh-huh. and it'll be an, it'll be cool to have like a short username because, you know, if everyone, they run out really quick, yeah. you know. You have, uh, and so, and I decided I wanted something that like, it would just be a string of letters and it wouldn't look like it was trying to, it wasn't a word, it wasn't okay. an acronym, it wasn't something you're supposed to pronounce. And then I I wanted to make sure not to include any letters that would be ambiguous if you wrote them like lowercase. or upp- So like no I's because they look like a like capital okay. I and okay. lowercase that's L. A, yeah, that's a good idea. No O's because <laughs> they smart. can look like zeros. But then of the remaining letters, then I just like tried to find a combination that I could like take as mine. And that would be like yeah. my spot in the space of all <laughs> strings of text.
0: And in addition to XKCD, you also have this fun blog called What If where you answer questions such as, how long would it take to slide down a fireman's pole from the moon to the earth? Is that kind of where you got some of the ideas for your new book, How To?
1: Yeah, I was really surprised when I started doing comics that people would write in with their questions uh, mm-hmm. for me to answer, uh, like science questions. But they always sort of said, like, me and my friend have been having an argument about this, but it seemed like too ridiculous to bother a real scientist about <laughs> so we figured we'd write to you instead um and and i would have so much fun answering them because when someone uh, asks a cool question like that and like if i think i know a way to get to the answer for me it's like getting a song stuck in your head like i i'll like stop whatever i'm doing and then just like work on that for like yeah end up like six hours of reading yeah and, that's you know, quite a rabbit hole yeah and and i have so much fun with that that i started like saying hey if, if i'm gonna write if i'm gonna do six hours of research i might as well like post it somewhere for someone to read and see if people <laughs> like it and then and then found that that people had a lot of questions and that I had so much fun uh, answering them that I uh, uh, found that it was a really good way to explain cool science ideas by taking mm-hmm. some simple-sounding practical problem or question and then trying to work through mm-hmm. it. And that's what I did with What If, and that's uh, also what I did sort of from another direction with How To. Uh,
0: yeah, How To is sort of the opposite of your last book, which was Thing Explainer in which you – I think took the, the thousand most common words in the English language and used them to explain incredibly complex concepts. How to, on the other hand, kind of flips that on its head and you take generally simple tasks like taking a selfie, uh, sending a message and that kind of thing, and you find more and more absurd and elaborate ways to accomplish these things. It's sort of a Rube Goldberg type thing, huh?
1: Yeah, I'm always good at coming up with ideas for solving some problem that Uh, I'm convinced we'll, like, in the long run, this will save time once we get it working, even though it seems complicated (laughs) now. And it, like, always ends up taking more time than the original, like, the normal way would. would. Um, But, yeah, I I, with this, I tried to think, okay, I'm going to take these simple tasks and try to think outside the box. Think of, like, the weird ways you might try to do it. Hmm. And then figure out whether they're really a bad idea or not. Yeah. And like they're almost always bad ideas, <laughs> but uh, it's it's it. sometimes it surprises you or sometimes you find that something you thought was a bad idea uh, has uh, has actually been tried or might actually work.
0: We're going to take a quick break and then I'll be back with more with Randall Monroe when we come back in just a minute. Imagine yourself with a doctoral degree at the top of your field, teaching, researching, or making a bigger impact in your community. A doctorate is a huge step forward to achieving your goals. So what's stopping you? A doctoral degree may seem out of reach because of the investment involved, be it a time investment or a financial one but you could earn your degree from Capella University through their flexible program with online classes and a dedicated community of faculty and students just like you. If you're worried about the cost of your degree, Capella is there to help, too. Eligible new students enrolling in select doctoral programs may qualify for a $5,000 or $10,000 scholarship. In addition to scholarships, Capella has a team of financial aid counselors, enrollment counselors, and career counselors to help you make your goals a reality, because you are an investment that's worth it. Learn more about the support and resources you'll have from beginning to end. You can also start by exploring Capella's programs and scholarship opportunities at capella.edu kick. And now back to the show. A lot of these ideas sound ridiculous, but sometimes I guess you really never know till you try. I mean, a lot of scientific discoveries and inventions probably sounded ludicrous at the time until someone actually thought a little deeper on the problem and... Yeah, just decided not to accept that something was inherently impossible.
1: Yeah, or just tried something ridiculous uh, uh, just, just to out see of curiosity. what would yeah. I mean, like antibiotics have like revolutionized <laughs> medicine Yeah. And, but like if you told someone I'm going to take this mold and then I'm going to smear it on this <laughs> cut that I got, you know, like that that definitely sounds like a bad idea. Yeah, um, yeah, no but then, kidding. Like, at the same time, there's lots of stuff you could smear on your yeah. on, on cuts. That, like <laughs> most of it won't be antibiotics. Uh, you know, it's not like every every uh, it's not like every bad idea is actually good. Yeah. But that's what I like about science is it lets you kind of figure out which ideas are good mm-hmm. and bad sometimes before you've had to try them mm-hmm. uh, through you know calculation and theory and research.
0: Can you give us some kind of an example of a task that could be done pretty easily by the simplest, most immediate way? but could also be done with these super over-the-top complex solutions, of course, with Um, the aid of science and perhaps an unlimited budget, I guess.
1: Yeah, um, I was thinking about uh, uh, how frustrating it is to move Uh, to pack stuff into boxes and it's like you know everyone like there's the sort of the standard way to move where you get a uh, some kind of a moving vehicle get a bunch of cardboard boxes you put the stuff in the cardboard boxes carry them out and it always takes up taking it always ends up taking like 10 times longer than you expect and it's so exhausting and derails your whole life it's really uh uh, i'm not i'm not a fan of moving but um i was thinking is there a way to avoid some of these steps like packing Um, So like I have to take all the stuff out of my house but then put it into boxes but it's sort of already in a box It's in this house shaped box and like (laughs) true what if instead of like getting a new house and selling the old house you just pick up the house and move it and like that's not totally uh, uh, off out of the question because you know people do move houses you see them sometimes on those big flatbed trucks. Uh, usually I think they do take the stuff out of the house before they do that, but I was thinking, could you just lift up the house with everything inside, move it to the new place, and then put it down? Um, and, and so I, go, I started researching, like, how do you lift a house? Uh, and I learned that you can't just, like, you know... Put uh, uh, like hooks under the edges and lift mm-hmm. up because a house is like a mattress. If you lift like one corner of it, just that corner will come up. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, <laughs> so you got to put like like girders underneath uh, the house and to okay. uh, to support it. Yeah. But then you and you got to detach it from the foundation. Uh, uh, but you really can then lift it and put it on mm-hmm. a truck. Um, but then as I'm researching this and I was talking to some friends, uh, uh, one of my friends she used to work at the. At a permitting office for the where they gave out the wide load permits for those trucks that you see on the highway. Okay, is that
0: DMV or who? Who you know? I'm not sure it was. Well,
1: what she what she said was that people what people didn't realize in her particular jurisdiction was that, um, you know, in her state, you had to get a permit for every jurisdiction you're going to pass through separately.
0: Yeah, I didn't even think about that. And she said that
1: people people who came into her office never knew that, and they would always get like. Uh, it would become a huge headache because they're like, oh, I didn't realize we we're going to have to do this. It's too late now. You know, I've got to... Um, and so I I was thinking you've got that problem and then you also got bridges over the road. Oh, yeah. And I was thinking about that jurisdiction question of like you're going to pass through all these different towns. Um, and then I realized, you know, up above all the towns is are the different classes of airspace. Oh, right. And airplanes yeah. don't have to get permits to pass through towns. True. They are all under the jurisdiction of the FAA. So it got me thinking... Could I skip that whole permit process by lifting the house up into the air, flying it sideways, and then coming back down? Um, and so, uh, you know, <laughs> I and I was, I, and then, and then it's like, so obviously that's not a good way to move. You know, I was, right. I was like, I know that. Well, you can't
0: do that with an ordinary helicopter. Can well, that's
1: you? what I was thinking though. I was like, okay, that's not a good way to move. But if you wanted to, could you? And that I could. I had, I couldn't rest until I knew the answer. And so I found out about these. Uh, uh, I went and looked at like heavy lift helicopters to see. Uh, if uh, they could uh, they could lift a house and like they, they couldn't lift the house I grew up in, it was too heavy. <laughs> um, and so but then I was thinking, well, you know, it's it's not that much heavier than their capacity. So if you got two or three or four helicopters, they could all lift it pulling together. Okay, but yeah. then I was thinking, well, okay, you got a whole bunch of helicopters attached to cables pulling Separately, on your house, yeah. like it's like a, a handful of balloons on a strings. Yeah, so you got to keep yeah. the yeah. helicopters it's like being from, drawn and quartered. Yeah, <laughs> and that's like well, you have to keep the helicopters from colliding with each other, yeah. but they all have to kind of go upward. Um, and then I thought, okay, well, what if you attach them all together into one giant helicopter with like rigid things so that their okay. blades are far enough apart they don't collide, and then they could lift together. And I'm and, and then and then I started to feel like, okay. This is this has gotten too impractical. Uh, uh, I've gone too far down this rabbit hole. And then I discovered, not because I was thinking it still probably would work to, to attach them together, but um, just as I was gonna like, okay, I'm gonna give up on that thread. I think that's too ridiculous. Uh, I found that there was a government project in the 1970s called like the Multi Helicopter Heavy Lift System, that was <laughs> l- like exactly what I described. They were like, let's take really? two helicopters, chop the tail off of one of them, and bolt them together, and get that to lift something. <laughs> And uh, and they uh, this this project there's a 150 page report on it where they go over all the details uh, uh, and it ended up that one ended up not getting funded um, <laughs> although I just learned. Yeah. So I, you know, I wrote about this, and I said this may sound like a ridiculous idea, but uh, the U.S. government has actually studied this. There was a study commissioned from this helicopter company to build one of these. Uh, so maybe, maybe this idea isn't as ridiculous as I thought. On the other hand, it never got funded, so yeah. maybe it was. I um, mean, there—it
0: seems like there are very few absurd things in a book like this that haven't, at one point, been thought of by the U.S. military.
1: <laughs> yeah, the the Cold War was a weird time. I mean, yeah. there was a whole nu- t- series of nuclear tests where they they bought. Uh, 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 Package soda and beer from a like a local convenience store, and then put it at a test site and uh, set off nuclear weapons over it, <laughs> just to see if it would survive and be drinkable afterwards. Yeah. Wow! Uh, and that's that's it was it was a wild time. Yeah, I, mean, I feel like if you get deep enough into any field, you start yeah. to find weird stuff like that. Like yeah. like uh, the way that um, fish fisheries researchers mm-hmm. they they have the thing called uh, electrofishing, where they stick a uh, um, some electrodes in the water and just like jolt the water with electricity and it it stuns <laughs> the fish and they float to the surface and then they can count them yeah. and like that's actually like how how they do it it's a useful tool for fisheries surveying stuff but it's They just kill the fish? No, the um, I mean if they turn the dial up too far yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, I they, thought they they try to, a, they try to stun them and they kind of okay. float up and they can it. see them and you know it's called electrofishing uh, but it And, like, it is useful. And, you know, I've read a bunch of papers by fisheries researchers who talk about, you know, the pros and cons of it and how it works and, you know, uh, uh, what kinds of fish you need what current for. But it, like... It really – if someone described that to you and you didn't know it was a real thing, it sounds like an idea that was come up with by a little kid who doesn't understand electricity. (laughs) Like, I'm going to just take this toaster and drop it in the water, and that will zap all the fish, and then I can save time with the fishing rod. You know, like, no, that's not how that works. But it turns out it is how it works. I I love that kind of thing.
0: Yes, and some of these are just straight-up Bond villain type stuff because uh, there's one chapter here on how to build a lava moat around your house. What's the biggest hurdle there? Is it? I, I would. I initially assumed that it would be how do you keep the lava molten because it's constantly cooling, isn't it? When it's exposed to the air, or, yeah, or cooling the house. I mean, yeah, that's another yeah. Issue.
1: I mean, I mean, the lava. Um, lava puts out a lot of heat, and mm-hmm. so I actually had a friend who had ants coming into his house, uh, and he was really frustrated by them because it's hard to get rid of them. And <laughs> then he uh, and he, you know, lived out in the woods, and he was like, I can't, I can't. You know, they're 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 always coming in from the you know all around. Uh, but I can. How, would it cost too much if I just wanted to put a moat of uh, molten lava around my house? and um, and so I started trying to calculate the cost for him. and uh, and yeah, the the big the big problem is heat loss off of the lava. Mm-hmm. So you've got to supply sure. enough heat to keep it molten. It's not just getting the lava there. It's like it's going to cool really quickly. Yeah. you know, a red hot stove, you turn off the stove. it stops being red hot pretty fast. Yeah. Um, and so so soon the lava will cool down, and you'll just have kind of a weird, lumpy sidewalk. And so you got to keep supplying heat uh, through some kind of heating mechanism. So if you if you figure out the uh, the heat, it's like there are papers on surveying lava flows, and it says how much heat flows off per square, you know, square meter, square foot, square whatever of lava, and you can just take that and and uh, you know you got to supply that much heat from the bottom to keep it balanced. You know, the the it's like a conservation thing. And so you just look up the price of uh, the price of gas heat, the price of electricity and uh, and do some simple division. And so I like he texted me about this. And so I texted him back. OK, I found a paper on this. It looks like for the house you're talking about, that's going to be about twenty five thousand dollars a day.
0: Okay, I mean there are so, certain tech tycoons who could actually afford yeah, that.
1: Yeah, it was definitely outside <laughs> my friend's price range, but yeah. um, but it's also I, I was surprised by how low that was. You know, yeah, I was thinking it was going to be a lot more, but it's like there there are a lot of people who uh, who could afford that, and um, some of them do kind of seem like the lava moat types. So <laughs> yeah.
0: uh, I, I think Elon Musk would totally go for a lava moat. Yeah,
1: what what honestly the the hurdle that I I was kind of curious about, I didn't I didn't ever get a a straight answer because this also varies from jurisdiction to jur- jurisdiction. But if I go out and try to build a lava moat in my uh, in around my house, like definitely a bunch of uh, authorities are going to be unhappy about that. Like no question. Yeah. At the very least like whoever comes <laughs> to read the meter is going to be like a little frustrated. You know, the FedEx people trying to deliver packages. But um but who would like actually tell you you had to stop first? Like or like like who <laughs> yeah, who actually has jurisdiction over that? You know, is that? it yeah. is it the fire department? Like they maybe be called okay, in to put out sense. the lava moat, but yeah. like do they actually, you know, is it against the fire code? You know, who yeah. is it against the is it the zoning board or would it just be like yeah. the mayor would just show up and be like Come on! You might be able to
0: get People away with that. You just say, "Look, show me where it's not." <laughs> there's no There's legal no rule in the books that says you can't this. have yeah. a lava move. There's nothing that yeah. says a dog can't play basketball. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm a, I'm a big fan of airbud theories yeah. of, uh, of of <laughs> of uh, of, of, uh, of law.
0: Well, speaking of that, there's a chapter in here on how to stop a drone using sports equipment. Uh, apparently a lot of government agencies still haven't really figured out the best way to catch a drone with if it has explosives attached. You got a little bit of help from, of all people, Serena Williams. How'd you get her to test that out, and how'd she do? Oh,
1: well, as usual, it started with I was go- going down a research rabbit hole because I was looking at, you know, there are all these different ways to to – you know, catch drones that people have tried. Some of them mm-hmm. are better than others. Uh, uh, but I started thinking about like, if you got one of those wedding photography drones floating over your yard and you don't have a fancy anti-drone piece of equipment and you're just going to like throw stuff at it, like what's the best thing to throw? And I started comparing all these different pieces of sports equipment to see how accurate they'd be. And there are a lot of studies in sports medicine and sports uh, physiology about about the accuracy of pro players in different sports. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I got to compare like, is a baseball better than a basketball? And I could do that by like looking at free throw percentages in basketball and the range to the basket versus like uh, the spread of a of a pitcher in baseball because they've got all the strike measurement stuff. Mm-hmm. And then in some other sports, it's they don't have as many uh, uh as many as much data from the play, mm-hmm. but uh, there are studies where they'll have pro players just like kick a soccer ball at a target on the wall. And measure like the 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 distribution huh. of where it hits. So you had a lot of data. Yeah. For so this. I had all this data, and so I was plugging it in to make this model. And um and I at the same time uh uh but I couldn't find good data on tennis players. And like it's, it might be out there, but I couldn't find it. I was like in the middle of like searching for a paper on tennis players hitting balls at targets that were up on the wall. There was one on hitting at the target on the ground. A couple others, but I wanted to you know something that would be good for the model for shooting at a drone. Mm-hmm. And and um. And I had texted way way back like ten years ago with uh, Serena Williams' husband because uh, he helped with when I published my first comic collection. No kidding. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Alexis Ohanian. Um, and and you know then and then I had you know I, I I'm in touch once in a while and he he had texted me about something and I said you know it's funny uh, 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 funny you should text I'm in the middle of like reading a whole bunch of papers on tennis player accuracy uh, for this book I'm working on. Uh, and he texted back, well, oh hey, if there's any way we can help out, let me know. You know, uh, uh, send us a message. So I was like, well, uh, you don't, you don't turn down an opportunity like that, you know. Yeah. So I was like, uh, so I, I asked if um, uh, I asked Serena if she would be willing to, like, I, I knew she's super busy, so I didn't want to like impose, <laughs> um, and I was just happy that they were going to contribute some data. So I, yeah. I asked if she could, uh, uh, if she would be willing, like, when she's going down to practice or something, uh, to. Just stick something to a wall, like a target, like a piece of masking tape, whatever, and then stand some distance away and serve a bunch of tennis balls at it, trying to hit it as close as she could. And if they can just, even if they just videotape the balls hitting the wall in some way where it, you know I can see on the video how far away it was, yeah. You know, maybe take a photo with a ruler up there. I would I would do all the work of like figuring out what you know the accuracy and all, figuring out modeling all that stuff, and then I could use that to plug it into my model and figure out how hard it would be for her to hit different drone models. Um and so I sent that I was, but I was trying to make it as simple as possible, you know, as little a little out of the way, a little extra work for them as possible. Um and and but it turned out she was like, "Do you want me to just hit a drone?" <laughs> um and I was I was like, "Oh, sure. Yeah." And so they had a drone that had a broken camera that they had been playing with, uh, <laughs> you know, it was their, uh, that was her husband's uh, old drone that he had gotten and so she um, so they, so, and it was already damaged, but it was a, it was a fancy drone you know, and they had it fly up over the court and, <laughs> and then she stood down by the baseline and served at it to try to knock it out of the air. Wow. And Yeah. I had, I had come up with like a preliminary model, you know, a, a model of like, oh, I looked at other players that hit things with, uh, and, and a few tennis studies where I tried to apply them to drones and it suggested that a pro player it should, you know, champion player should take, uh. Uh, my guess was like maybe five to seven serves to hit that model at that distance. Mm-hmm. Um, and she missed the first two just missed and the third one nailed it and really? uh, knocked it out of the air. Wow. So she did, actually took it out. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that, it, yeah. It, um, it, it, she clipped one of the four wing, you know, propeller things uh-huh. and, and disintegrated the propeller just kind of disintegrated <laughs> and it flipped incredible. Over. But, um, what a serve. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't know. So she did better than my model suggested, but, yeah. um, that could just be a statistical outlier, but I sort of think it's a Serena Williams outlier yeah.
0: now did you attempt any of these experiments yourself?
1: uh not really um i I sort of feel like there's all the stuff that like is easy to test uh in real life um and and I, st- I steer away from that stuff mostly because like Mythbusters does that really mm-hmm. well, you yeah. know, and it'll yeah, be fun and true. and there's a lot of YouTube videos of people trying stuff, and so I like to think about the stuff that's maybe uh Harder or less practical to test, um, like attaching helicopters together. Although it turns out several other people have done that too, um, (laughs) which I'm delighted by. But yeah, I I did. um, There was one case when I tried to come up with a model for how throwing works. You know, I wanted to do how far you can throw stuff. Um,
0: Yeah, it was based off of some legend about George Washington. Is that right? Yeah, there's a a story that
1: he threw a coin (laughs) over... Uh, some river and they it's one, like with a lot of these stories about George Washington, people just seem to really like telling stories about him. So it's not clear like where it, most of these started circulating after he had died and people were like, Oh, well, you know, I heard once heard he did this. So like sometimes the rivers, the Rappahannock, sometimes it's the Potomac, which he definitely couldn't have thrown something over, you know? Um, but, uh, but whatever it was, everyone agreed. He was a big, strong guy who liked throwing stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: uh,
1: so he, yeah. And so I was, I, I was trying to think like, how can you calculate how far you can throw something? Uh, and I was thinking about the different sports equipment and different uh, projectiles. And I realized, and this is the physics thing talking where you come up with a simple model because it's uh, it might not be as precise, but it's still really uh, uh, cool that you can get answers. I just said, okay, I don't know what someone does when they throw. Some sports thing happens, you know, yeah. something athletic happens. But I know that they're going to be applying force. Over a certain distance to this ball to get it going from not moving to moving however fast it is when they release it. And so I looked at like the metabolic power that people are capable of putting out and then assume like they're pretty good at focusing that power on the ball somehow when they throw, you know, like people, mm-hmm. people, and, and, and people seem like you know you they always say throw with your whole body you know you gotta have follow through you gotta so it's like okay what if you just plug in here's how much uh, metabolic power people can output when they're doing a hard athletic activity um, like rowing or something because they got an, or cycling and it's about like for an athlete a superb athlete it's like twenty watts per kilogram of body weight for a more like okay n- normal in shape amateur it'd be more like ten yeah and then if you just assume that power is applied over the distance that like the length of their body, you know, like a pitcher, your arm spans about the same as your height. So if it's like five feet, six feet, you know, you're going to apply that, that much power and you're going to apply it over that distance. You can work out, here's how fast the ball could be going at the end of it. Um, you know, based on how much the ball weighs and, uh, how much, you know, your size. And when I plugged that in, I plugged in that, um, the weight of a baseball pitcher and a baseball. And it Uh said, you know, about 90 miles an hour. And that's really and, and I was like, "Whoa, now that's, that's actually impossible. pretty close, you know yeah. that's that's like that's major league fastball, yeah, um, and then I put in a a football player uh and the weight of a football, which is heavier, and it said like sixty five miles an hour, and that was actually that was a it was a little high um I think the fastest uh uh football passes are more like sixty, but um but it was still kind of like that's about right, you know. And so I started plugging, in. I was like, wait a minute, this model. The nice thing about having a really simple model is you can, all all is you can put anything this. in there. Yeah. So I think fig- I was like, okay, let's put in the weight of a blender and see how far a football player could throw that. So then, I, and I and it was so powerful. I was like, oh, here's how far you know Barack Obama could throw a javelin. Here's how far I got. Carly Ray Jepsen could throw a microwave twelve feet, you know. And this was so much fun. But then I was like, I want to see if this model's right before I like. It's sort of just a fun simple model, but I want to mm-hmm. I want to go check it. So me and my friend got yeah. a bunch of random objects and we went out to a field and marked off distances and we tried to see how far the two of us could throw the objects to see and and like the equation held up pretty well. Really? So, no kidding. Yeah, so so <laughs> I've included that in my book and then Put a calculator online at uh, my website, xkcd.com slash throw, where you can plug in your height and weight and figure out how far you can throw stuff.
0: (laughs) Well, before we go, sort of along the sports line, you have this chapter on how to ski that I found very interesting. And this was one of many cases where I learned a little something in this book. Uh, You say that scientists still don't actually know how the surface of ice or snow gets slippery so that we can ski or skate. Yeah. That's that shocked me. I mean, I don't want to trot out the old we can put a man on a moon saw, <laughs> but you know, we, we can build nuclear missiles, we can make a particle accelerator. How in the world do we not know how ice works by now? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, maybe maybe if putting a man on the moon involves skiing, we'd have, fig- <laughs> we'd we'd have it like out. we got a reason. No, um we yeah. and we've made some headway on the ice slipperiness. Okay. You know, like there there have been a couple of papers recently that really nailed it down, but there was this idea that like the blade of a skate Lowers the melting point of ice by that's three what by, I like, always by like you know uh, a few degrees. Yeah, and then because it lowers the melting point by a few degrees, it drops below the temperature of the of the air, you know, of the skate of the ice, um, and then uh, and then it melts, and a thin layer melts, and then that's what you're surfing on is that layer mm-hmm. of water. Uh, the and this is a great this is the theory that came up in the 1800s, and it's weird because that kind of persisted as the dominant explanation for like you yeah. know fifty, hundred years, except. That theory says that it'll melt because you lower the melting point by a couple of degrees, and then that's, then it's low enough that the ice will be will melt. But you can skate when it's more than a couple of degrees below freezing. It still works, yeah, and the theory huh. that's like clearly proof that this theory is flat wrong, you know. Funny and yeah, but like I, no one really noticed you know uh, for a long time
0: yeah i mean i'm pretty sure that that's the theory that i was taught in high school <laughs> in yeah. science class so they've so.
1: they've finally sorted it out yeah. sort of which is that like when you got a crystal of ice most of the the water molecules are locked into this grid like uh you know um and it's like a woven like i think of it as sort of like a woven rug mm-hmm. where the threads in the middle are really hard to move cuz they're like locked in firmly but the ones on the edge are kind of frayed and they're not being held in as easily so uh-huh. they they're free yeah. to like flutter around a little bit and they're more like free Moving water molecules so like ice will naturally form on the edge of its crystals a layer of kind of liquid uh you know or semi-liquid water and that's the slippery part that's what you slip on
0: interesting well this was such a fun read randall oh, i'm so glad you enjoyed it <laughs> again the book is called how to absurd scientific advice for common real world problems and i also want to tell people to check out your terrific cartoons at xkcd.com randall monroe thanks for talking with oh me.
1: no thank you so much this was a lot of fun
0: Thanks again to Randall Monroe for coming on the podcast. Order his new book, How To, Absurd Scientific Advice for Common Real-World Problems, on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. And view some of his wonderful cartoons at xkcd.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. Five-star ratings and detailed reviews are one of the best ways for new listeners to discover the show. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at, at kickassnewspod and recommend us to your friends on your social media. For more fun stuff, visit kickassnews.com and I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, I'm Ben Mathis and thanks for listening to Kickass News.